This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. When it's those who, who want to embrace and baptize these kind of um, gender tropes that are, um, you know, well, very American in some ways and, and very contemporary. And also in other ways, they're connected to, I think, what is an Aristotelian mm. uh, metaphysic of sexuality and sexual polarity. And, and so sometimes I like to go back to that and, and see how we still are um, borrowing this kind of ideology of uh, woman being the deformed male in some ways, and right. and the masculine, so-called masculine traits, um, are are the traits of virility and potency, and and the feminine traits, you know, quote unquote, air quotes here, um, are the ones that are supposed to be passive and soft, and so you know, what is it then that's virtuous about femininity? And when we look at those things, I, I think that it's very revealing. Um, but also, I think that men, this isn't fair for men either. Men really struggle if, if their um, masculinity is defined by their level of aggression and, and powerful leadership skills and, and, and these kind of things. It's, it's always things that we're to put on. And I think that that is something that has really hurt both men and women because we don't measure up. And so th- there's always this question of, am I masculine enough? Mm. Am I feminine enough? And, and it's like the stuff that you have to put on. And I think you see that same language then in the culture around us, especially in, you know, a lot of struggling with sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I talk to men who, you know, say they've really struggled um, throughout their lives um, with their own masculinity, not because, um, you know, they struggle with homoerotic desire or things like that, but uh, because, you know, maybe they're sensitive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe they aren't like super athletic, um, you know, these kind of things. And, and, you know, sensitivity, well, I mean, I think that is, in, you know, it's something we all should want to cultivate right. well. So, um it's, it shouldn't be looked at as a weakness, but rather a strength. And so I think that uh, we also have to look that each person is a unique, human, unrepeatable individual. And, and, and that's something of great value. I think one of the things you do really well in this book, of the many things you do well in this book, is you, um, A, you use Song of Solomon. I'm, I'm not going to lie. When you first sent me the book and it was Song of Solomon, <laughs> I flinched a little bit like, oh boy. I imagine so. Here with, we go, right? Yeah. Uh, well, because there are just so many ways to go wrong there. Um, right? It's, but it's it was really impressive to, to, yeah, to watch you work through the poem or the series of poems there, uh, mm-hmm. and how much they reveal, and how much, uh, you know, if you think about comparing yourselves, how masculine, how, you know, even what you just said there about, uh, can I be masculine enough? It made me think, like, can I be pretty enough? Can I be skinny mm-hmm. enough? Can I, you know, the mm-hmm. equal, equal and opposite errors? Um, and 
there's really like deathly consequences to this kind of thinking, um, both in right. er- anorexia and reverse anorexia. I don't, there's an actual name for it, but it's when guys can't be muscular enough and they always think they're puny, um, no mm-hmm. matter how big they get. Um, but also I'm, I'm doing a book club with men right now at my, um, my school. And we're talking about on killing and why, why men really don't want to kill in combat and the, the stats on that, mm. that men are really hesitant to actually point their rifles and kill other men in combat. Mm. Um, and you see it in young men and I'm a combat vet as well. Like the, this desire to prove yourself by joining the military, volunteering for combat, going all the way to the extremes, which actually just gets a lot of people killed uh, mm. and scarred for life uh, with PTSD. Right. And so, uh, can you talk about in your book kind of who we set up as the ideal human really does kind of determine what we think about gender and, and even our gender? Yeah. Roles? That's a really good question because one of my uh, observations with this whole topic of masculinity and femininity and what that looks like is that we've been so horizontal mm. in our definitions, even in the church. And so, you know, you see, um, particularly in the complementarian movement, it being defined as, you know, male leadership and, you know, their qualities and abilities to lead women. And that's what masculinity is defined by. And for femininity, it's defined by, you know, our ability to uh, point out male leadership and puff it up, basically, Mm. in the very definition. And, um, you know, even... And you know, whatever benevolence is supposed to be in these uh, definitions, and, and even at our best intentions and in trying, um, th- that is so one-dimensional and flattening of our sexuality um, because th- there's no Christ in it. Hmm. And so I think that you know our eyes as men and women both need to be directed to Christ as yet, like you're saying, the ultimate human, right? Um, and, and, and that orients our desires properly, and it puts everything into place. And, um, you know, one reason that I really turned to the song songs for this is because in the song, we see the story of the spousal love of God. Mm-hmm. And in that, I think that we see our extreme value to Christ, um, even in a Trinitarian way, as, as, you know, the father's gift of the bride to the son and his reception of that gift. And, um, and so there's this sense in which, uh, as a corporate identity, we're all feminine and mm-hmm. in the sense that we are the bride, we make up the bride of Christ. And so we see that picture um, consummated, really, at the end of Scripture in Revelation. We see the bride um, coming down out of heaven from God, um, you know, radiant as the sun. And so then, you know, I think we we can take a look then typologically speaking of how our sexuality has a lot of meaningfulness to it in the sense of, you know, the stories that our bodies tell of Christ's great love for his church. And I think that, you know, there's something much more rich, much more imaginative, um, much more glorious in that picture than these flattening one dimensional definitions that uh, we have when we're just looking horizontally to define ourselves. It, that is that was really helpful. Um, I know you keep calling yourself a layperson, but I learned so much from you, so I just don't buy it. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, the I, this happened with me recently too with my my men's book club. I'll just keep on referring to them because they're such a it's a group of college guys, and so they're like 
They just okay. offer so much to this discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I challenged them. I said, hey, why can't um, being strong and protection, you know, protective and aggressive, why can't that be essential to what it is to be masculine? And man, I got nothing but crickets for a long time. And I essentially had to wow. push them back to the garden and say like, hey, you, you know, when we were male and female, <laughs> there was a time when aggression was not needed, right? Uh, right. A, yeah, um, so that it can't be that our aggression is what it's fundamental to be a male and female. We have to imagine a world where, uh, where that, and you, you point this out at the end, these eschatological imaginations barring from Trevor Hart there. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when you, you see that too, like masculinity in the, in the garden, in the beginning, and you see it um, in Christ and you see it in the song, you see it, uh, you know, in the best ways when we see ma- masculinity, um, particularly in the fact that Jesus is a man and he is the bridegroom and that's a masculine thing. Um, but what does it teach us? It's, it's, it's an order of love, you know, and Pope John Paul II has done some really good work on this, but I think he's the first to love, he's the first to give, and he's the first to sacrifice. Hmm. Yeah. So even that using the aggression or the power and deferring it, laying it down, um, uh, and, and there is an appropriate use of power in the end. I, 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 this is a question on theological method, like how you think through the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of Eden to eschaton from beginning to end, and then seems like Christ is in the middle. Mm-hmm. So can you explain why those are the important nodal points for you? Yeah. So for me, I'm kind of looking at the whole meta narrative of scripture, which, you know, the early church fathers looked at the song as kind of this microcosm mm-hmm. of the whole uh, narrative of scripture. And, it's interesting because now I think we are kind of shy um, to teach from the song. Mm. Um, you know, there's so many different interpretations and, um, you know, we don't want to get it wrong, especially when we're talking about God. And, you know, we've got like the whole Mark Driscoll debacle on how he taught the song of songs in, in, in such a horrid uh, way. Um, and how do we recover from that? Right. But, um, you know, the early church fathers, they would even use the Song of Songs as like a hermeneutical key when they weren't understanding, you know, another uh, hard to interpret text in scripture. Um, They would look to the song and and the story told there to help them interpret other more difficult parts of scripture. So, you know, I've really um, immersed myself in those kind of readings and um, into the song itself. And, And it's interesting because, you know, I think people today, like, um, you know, after the enlightenment and higher criticism, like don't want to look at the song as an allegory anymore. Right. And in some ways I understand because, you know, there was, you know, rampant allegorism going on, um, even in the early church, um, where everything was this code to be cracked. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we don't need to read it that way. And that can get, you know, us off course pretty quickly, but really there's no other way to read the song. Um, it is allegory. Yes, it does talk about sexuality and, and, you know, I want to listen to the, the criticism today to say, like, you know, okay, well, the early church fathers were, um, you know, too too modest. They didn't want to talk about the sexuality itself mm. in the song. So they assign it to, you know, being God's love for his people. But, you know, the, the, the Bible begins with a wedding. It ends with a wedding. Um, we've got the major pro- prophets talking about um, Israel in terms of adultery and bride. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got... In Ephesians, Paul talking about the great mystery that that marriage pictures, which is Christ's union with his bride. And then right in the middle of scripture, we have the Song of Songs, 
um, which is, you know, a very erotic <laughs> picture of Christ's love for us. And, and I think what that does is it um, teaches us that, um, you know, our relationship with Christ isn't just about knowing the right doctrines. Um, I think sometimes we are, you know, that's very important, <laughs> but I think sometimes you get so caught up in getting everything right. And we all want to affirm, um, rightfully so, a savior that died on the cross for us. But we don't so much talk about um, his great desire for his bride. And so the song kind of invites us um, into something more than just propositional statements that we use in the classroom, but it, it takes us into the inner chambers and it evokes all of our senses and it beckons us in this way. And so it beckons our desire, you know, through his desire for us as we see the words of the, the groom to the bride um, and she affirms that I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Um, so here we have this book all about desire, and it's all about, you know, God's spousal love for his people and the unitive meaning then of our bodies even. I want to go back to the the phrase you use the aristotelian person um mm -hmm. I, I don't remember what the exact phrase but so there's going to be some people listening who are like what does aristotelian mean uh yeah so what do you mean when you're referring to that i i assume i i think i know what you're meaning uh, but what do you mean when you refer to aristotle and why is it a problem and is there anything good about aristotle <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're still obviously, you know, talking in his categories in a lot of ways because there was a lot of good, which makes it even harder when you have, um, you know, some some major flaws, mm -hmm. and, and this would be one, and, and this is a metaphysical one um, of sex polarity, and so man and woman are polar opposites, and he he refers to um, woman as deformed man, and so um, that she is inferior in her body, in her virtue, and in her wisdom. And that language was carried out through, uh, through the early church, through the reformers, through the Puritans. You know, it, it evolves a little bit, but, you know, um, I quote from some of them, and, and, and not in a way to say, okay, let's cancel them now and, and not learn mm -hmm. from them and read from them anymore, but in a way to say, like, let's look with discernment here because we've learned so much and we'll continue to learn so much um, from these fathers in the faith. Um, we need to be able to point some of this out and be able to trace um, how our thinking is affected by it. So, you know, you've got um, Kursasim saying that woman is inferior uh, in matter and less important. You've got Augustine saying she's of small intelligence and inferior in flesh, that man has superior reason. You've got mm. Thomas Aquinas calling woman defective and misbegotten. Um, uh, and he talks about the masculine sex as the perfect likeness, um, woman as defect. You've even got John Calvin saying that um, woman is inferior in consequence to the superiority of the male sex. You've got John Knox saying that um, woman, you know, he defines her as the weak, the sick, and the impotent, um, foolish, mad, and frantic, uh, and frenzy. You've got William Gouge saying that men, male is more excellent in dignity. So you, what do we do with all that? Yeah. Yeah. What do we do with that? I mean, <laughs> I, that, 
I mean, I think a lot of us struggle with this. Um, I mean, some people like the Heidegger was a Nazi. Bart kept a mistress on the side. Like in the yeah. theological world, these people that some people admire. Um, mm-hmm. But th- this isn't just Augustine had a mistress on the side. This is, you're talking about Augustine's view of the nature of the human right. body, the human person. And it it's, you know, Oh, I don't think it's inconsequential that Augustine also did kind of have a, um, I don't know what you call the relationship. He left a woman high and dry with a child, right? Right, right. Um, So. And I think it's more complicated than that, too, because, you know, you look at his views for his mother. Right. And and you see him, you know, talking quite beautifully about her um, and learning from her. So, and valuing her. So I think it's more complex than even we can get from these quotations. But it, it does affect the way that, you know, woman is viewed and her voice is even um, viewed because now if, if, if any of that is true um, to any degree, then, then woman is suspicious when she speaks and, and right. she must be managed by man. Yeah. Uh, and it, there's no way in which this view of women doesn't seep into women's own view of themselves. Right, right. Um, and in fact, their view of themselves. And I think, uh, oh, there's a thought that just came to my mind that you just fired off and has gone <laughs> off into the horizon and has left. Hate when that happens. But yeah, well, it's, uh, it's the age. Um, <laughs> the uh, Well, I think that if you carry that view like you said, with Monica and Augustine, his, his mother, mm-hmm. uh, you do wonder if you can switch it on and off. And so when women do come to the forefront where they are magnanimous, where they are guiding, where they obviously know more than the men around them, and it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. uncon- incontrovertible that the, the women are the one to be listened to, that's the exception to the rule as well. Right. So we, we can always grant an exception to the rule because it's an exception, so it keeps uh, the, the, the prominence of um, masculinity safe. Right. Right. That is so true. And I mean, how difficult that is for women then, because then, you know, what do you do with that too? Just that, oh, okay. It just is so dismissive and minimizing then to say that, well, most of you are this way. There's a few exceptions um, that might be like that donkey who was able to speak that one time. (laughs) Yeah. God can talk to an ass. He can talk to me. Right. Um, Yeah. yeah, I, I do think some fellows now are feeling the like. I think a lot of white men, especially my you know forty something year old white men and above, are mm-hmm. finally for the first time in their life feeling like nobody cares what I say. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and as soon as I speak, people just look at me suspiciously and go like, "You're just uh, you're just you're just a white man. Nobody cares what you say." And so there's this. <laughs> I think there's a little tiny taste of this uh, coming back, at least in the social media sphere, because um, I'm watching white men just getting blazed by people for sometimes very minor infractions, if they're infractions at all. Um, so I think everybody's getting the taste of this. Um, I want to go to the, the actual, the end of your book. You have this, uh, this chapter called Sometimes the Last Man Standing is a Woman. Oh, yeah. My favorite um, one to write, I think. Yeah, it, it was... It, I, it was fun to read as well. And the, the <laughs> title came from something Beth Moore said to you. Um, yes. And so why, what, what, what did you mean by that biblically speaking, I guess? <laughs> yeah. So um, 
Beth and I had found ourselves in this YouTube video that uh, Doug Wilson's daughter put together, but his oh, publisher, yeah, okay. yeah, his publisher actually produced it, and it was accusing Beth Moore and I of being feminists and and how horrible that is. And she's in her, you know, very extra kitchen, you know, as my daughter would say, it's just extra. <laughs> yeah glorious kitchen and she's peeling potatoes and she's saying that we're trying to get women out of the home by doing Bible study, you know, horror of horrors and, um, you know, sets up this kind of false dichotomy. And, um, so it went, you know, circulating all over social media and, and Beth reached out to me and we were kind of just saying, well, you know, a lot worse has been said about us. So, mm -hmm. you know, some things we just need to laugh about and, uh, move on with our lives. And, uh, you know, Beth says at the end of the conversation, pretty much, you know, sometimes by the grace and power of Jesus, the last man standing is a woman. And I just thought, oh, man, is that mm. prophetic, you know, because that is what we see at the end of the story, right? We see, mm. as I was saying before, our corporate identity as the bride of Christ. And we see that so gloriously in the Song of Songs, too, because um, here is the woman kind of mocked by the daughters of Jerusalem and and uh, treated badly by her brothers and the guardians of the walls. We've got these night scenes to go through. And yet mm. throughout the song, we see that, uh, you know, along with calling her a lily and having dove's eyes and even these more feminine, ter feminine terms, um, you see the man telling her that her neck is like a tower and, and she's got like 10,000 shields hung on it. And that uh, she's as awe-inspiring as an army of banners. And she's just kind of this, um, formidable bride. And at the end, you see as her brothers are, are, you know, deciding what to do with her. Um, you, it, you know, her voice is just so powerful. She says, you know, I am a wall and my breasts are towers. And in his eyes, I am one, like, I am one who finds peace, like one who finds peace. So it's interesting to see this uh, military language ascribed to the woman because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, all, you know, she represents the reward of Christ's obedience. So, you know, she represents all that he earns and, um, and all the blessings for his bride. And she's strong. She's standing. She's, uh, her breasts are towers. This means like, you know, not only is this like a military structure, but it's also, it gives us perspective, you know? Um, she has the perspective of the bride of Christ. And, and, and what does she find? Not the things that you would think about, uh, using this military language of, you know, aggression and war, but she finds peace. Hmm. So, you know, to me, all that was just came together in that statement. And I thought, oh, that is a chapter title. So I asked for best permission to use it and, and to go with that and play it up in the, in the, in the chapter. I was puzzling with this very thing on, the, on this theme with my class the other day that um, we presume that most of the biblical text, and I'm a Hebrew Bible guy, so most of the Hebrew mm -hmm. Bible we presume is mostly written by men. Um, mm -hmm. Although I'm, I don't, I'm not ac actually sure why we always presume that, but um, but who knows? But it's mostly written by men. And certainly, as you say, there's some androcentric control of the narrative uh, there. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's really hard to fathom in the ancient Near East, especially the Levant, where these texts come out of, 
mm-hmm. why they keep on painting men as such doofuses um, <laughs> and why, the, you know, I, I was going over, you know, I was reviewing all the scenes where men are heated up in their emotions, making rash vows and stupid decisions. Right. And the women come in calm, cool, collected and logical and help them see the error in their ways. And the men usually acknowledge uh, except for Jephthah, uh, usually acknowledge <laughs> and, and go along. So, it, I mean, it really is difficult. And you see the same thing in the Gospels, which we uh, know are written by men, where men are the hard-hearted, the, the disciples are hard-hearted idiots, just adults <laughs> bumbling about, and the women seem to see, the blind people and the women are the only one who seem to see. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm interested, like, opinion-wise, Why? what do you do with that kind of dichotomy? Like, are they... What do you think they're doing, rhetorically speaking? Yeah, so um, I think woman, in a lot of ways, in her voice in the in scripture, makes visible the invisible, and I think yeah. her her typology is even functioning in that way. It's it's prophetic. But um, uh, in my previous book, recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood, I I really get into this because. Richard Balcom uh, did some interesting work on it in his book Gospel Women, which isn't you know a book that you would think of first of, you know, influential work of his, but uh, I really got so much out of it. And I'm I'm still just, you know, kind of building on that, but he talks about um, how woman's voice functions in scripture. And um, so, you know, we have this androcentric text, but then the woman's voice often interrupts the androcentricity there and it kind of makes visible the invisible and it tells the story behind the story and so that goes along so well with what i was just you know talking about the towers and and perspective it gives us i think a a perspective from from up high a little bit more Mm -hmm. but another thing it it shows us is while you know women might not be the writers of scripture, you know, there are some sections that, that are questionable, but um, they were certainly tradents of the faith. They're passing down the stories that are recorded in scripture. And so um, that has to be because they were listened to and valued and recorded. And clearly the Holy Spirit plays a role in this. But um, why do we even have, as you're saying, in such a patriarchal culture, um, why do we even have recorded such positive perspectives from the women. Right. Um, and it's because they told their stories and they were valued and listened to. And uh, you know, clearly the Holy Spirit was working there. But, you know, all throughout scripture, you see that happening over and over again with like, you know, Shepra and Pua. Why do we know what mm-hmm. happened there? Because they told the story. You know, why do we know about Halda? Um, you know, all these different occurrences with Abigail and, and, um, you know, on and on, the whole story in Ruth is kind of told in the feminine perspective um, in this narrative form. So um, it interrupts in a very good way. And I think, you know, that's what the gospel does, right? Yeah. On a good day. (laughs) Yeah. On a good day. (laughs) Yeah. When when we're doing it right. Yeah. I mean, even (laughs) Exodus and um, Carmen Imes has written on this a little bit, but you know, the, the fact that Exodus opens with four women who refuse refuse the orders of the men around them who have the, the, the official power structures um, and, and inaugurate the scene that actually gets, that then spills into Moses. It's, it's really striking. Yeah. Doesn't she have a chapter on that coming out? 
she uh yeah we have a book coming out uh with the center for hebraic thought uh yeah i read that for for endorsement and i immediately messaged her because i just she got my, my mind spinning with that chapter uh, which another one I was so happy to see because I teach that every semester and I force students to really sit in that. And then she so beautifully uh, kind of retells that story. She does. Um, the uh, and, and what do you, and also kind of following the thread of the the last man standing is often a woman. Uh, you you actually meant it kind of literally in some ways as well, like in, <laughs> in the biblical stories. So maybe what do you mean by that? Like in the stories of scripture, why are women often actually the last ones on the scene, which I think. Yeah. Isn't that something? I mean, life. it's something worth examining and let me turn. Cause I have, uh, I just kind of do a little bit of a survey, um, how these women are pointing us to Christ and the last woman standing. I think they're pointing us to this unitive meaning of, of our bodies of Christ and his bride. And so you think of other women who are standing in scripture, pointing to the bridegroom who's calling us to him. And you've got, Tamar, who's exposed Judah's hypocrisy while fighting to secure his progeny in his mm-hmm. ancestry of Christ. Shifra and Pua, like I just said, who defied the Pharaoh, kept the male Hebrew line um, alive. Abigail, who brought needed hospitality to David, um, you know, interceding at the risk of her own life there and imploring him not, you know, imploring him to leave vengeance to God. Rahab, who hid the spies, recognizing that God the God of Israel was, was the true God, securing herself into God's covenant family. Um, Ruth, who grasped God's hesed love um, and fulfilling the vow she made to Naomi, and sh- she also secures a son in the line of Christ. Um, Esther, the foreign wife of the king, who by faith approaches the king in the inner court um, without in- invitation to be a whistleblower, and she saves God's people from annihilation. Um, Anna, the prophetess, what a glorious story there, who just waits into mm-hmm. old age for the Holy One, and, and she gets to see him with her own eyes, just telling anyone who would listen that redemption had come. Um, the Canaanite woman who followed Jesus' flock to find him after he withdrew from the crowds, like she knows where to find him, though, mm-hmm. and she relentlessly asks him for healing um, for her daughter, and, and it just shows her great faith as she's like, this theological conversation partner with Jesus and, and, and how that foreshadows the great commission that he's going to proclaim later and, and bringing in the Gentiles. You've got the Samaritan woman who, who's like the Deuteronomy 24 woman. She's passed mm. from husband to husband so that her own body, which you know I, I make the argument that represents sacred space, has been defiled and has no real husband now, but she calls her whole town to the betrothing well, to the true bridegroom. Um, you know, I go on through Martha and Mary Magdalene and just all the women at the cross um, when the disciples fled. And there's just so many women tracing this all the way to the Revelation bride. Yeah. So yeah, quite literally, we see it all through scripture, this thread of the last woman standing. And I think it's important to also note that because someone could say, well, you're just cherry picking the top. 10, you know, um, Mm -hmm. but alongside each one of these stories are men who are standing there, not understanding what's going on. I think that bringing bringing visible the invisible is, uh, is a great way to put it. Yeah. And I think that's what, uh, kind of apocalyptic literature does. Right. And, um, I think that the song is like that in a way because it lifts the veil for us and it, and it takes us and gives us a peek into, (laughs) 
behind the veil, uh, the early church fathers referred to the song as the Holy of Holies of scripture. Mm. Like if you want to get into the most intimate, uh, reading, you know, where Christ is present with his people now here in, in this time between the already and the not yet read the song. Um, okay. So you've used the word body, uh, quite a bit here. Uh, mm-hmm. Familiar with uh, the feminist movement, a lot of people will say, "Oh, body! This is just feminism." Why is the body so? Do you think it's so important to the work of Scripture? And I'll follow up with another question. I can remind you of it, of it later. But um, do you hear the bodies like the body plays a really weird role in the kind of the biblical manhood womanhood uh, discussion as well? So yeah. maybe how do you see the body in Scripture, and then We'll talk about that biblical manhood, womanhood thing second. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think oftentimes when we talk about spirituality, we we do fall into this sort of Gnosticism sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and um, we we talk about our spirituality as if it's not embodied. And and the future heavens and earth is, is very much a fleshly thing. You know, uh, mm-hmm. the resurrection, Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection we are not only going to have new bodies, but, you know, it's going to be on a new earth. Um, and it's going to be in this union of heaven and earth. And, and I really see that, that our bodies speak and in the Song of Songs. It's very much enfleshed. You know, it's, it's uh, this eroticism and this desire is shown to us in the flesh, in man and woman, in ways that we're even uncomfortable with reading some. Um, and I think that this is telling us the picture that our bodies speak, which is, you know, here we have man and he represents, you know, earth pressing onward toward consummation, the, the, the person and the work of the first and the last Adam. Um, and, and in woman, we see the end of that work. We see like heavenly Zion. Um, and, and my friend Anna Anderson has done a lot of work in, in this area too. Um, but we see heavenly uh, space and heavenly people. Um, and so together we represent the consummation in our joy and the union of heaven and earth, Christ and his bride. So I think that um, when we lose the, the story that our bodies speak, then we fall into legalism. And I think that can be in either way, in, in, in the conserv- ultra conservative, you know, quote unquote, biblical manhood and womanhood movement. Or even in you know secular secular progressivism, um, we can easily easily fall into uh, legalism of you know what we think um, it should look like. Yeah, because I, I, strangely, biblical manhood you hear a lot of very embodied language and lots of like focus on the body and, and some, Mm -hmm. I guess in some wings of it. Um, but, uh, there is almost like a domination, like men get a hold of your bodies, your, your wife's body or your future wife's body is there for you. Um, there's a domestication of the body rather than you you keep using this phrase, the body speaks like the, let the body say what it wants to say. Right. Yeah, because I think the story is anchored in eschatology. So when you try to anchor it in these cultural mores, it's it's enslaving, really. Mm. It's not freeing. And I think that that leads to shame. Mm. And uh, the the more eschatologically rooted anthropology leads to glory. Mm. 
Um, so do single people have any place in your thinking on gender or are they just yeah. completely excluded? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that's the beauty of it, right? Because we're, we're all telling the story of Christ's love for his bride, whether we're single or married. You know, it's maybe easy to picture it in marriage more. Um, although, you know, some of the most lonely people I know are married mm-hmm. people. Um, but, you know, I think singles, like, for one thing, they represent to us our relationships with each other that carry on to the new heavens and the new earth as brothers and sisters. Like, that yeah. is eternal. That carries on. Um, you know, Jesus tells us that man and woman will not marry on the new heavens and the new earth because. You know, that's well, consummated. I have an argument him. against that in a, in a recent. Oh, time. really? He does say those words. Oh, yeah. I, I, uh, I don't think he's actually talking about marriage at all. But, but even if not, I think the point still holds that the, the brother yeah. and sisterhood is the, is the bond that actually relates all humanity to one another. Yes. And it's eternal. And then not only that, but I think we need to relate to our spouses firstly as brother and sister. And and you see the bridegroom doing that in the song. He calls her sister bride. Um, it's so tender, but um, also I think that singles represent not only this, this longing that's to come, you know, and, and waiting on that and being fulfilled in Christ now, but also um, their value as whole people that is, it's not connected to some kind of role that you play mm. as husband or wife or mother. Um, but in yourself, you are valuable. Mm. And I think that that speaks a lot because we all struggle with that so much. So I think what you just said isn't actually just aimed towards single people. I think that's equally aimed towards married people as well. Well, that's right? what we need to learn, you know? And, and so I think that, um, you know, we learn from each other. But that in both cases, you see that, you know, ultimately our joy is not found in finding the perfect spouse, mm-hmm. being the perfect father, um, monogamous sex, <laughs> or, uh, you know, all the other ways that the world tells us, you know, being able to sexually express ourselves any way that we want. Right. Um, but that it's found in having our desires oriented properly and, and to be fulfilled in the great love that Christ gives us. Um, so you volunteered your body to kind of sit at the intersection of all of these debates, uh, where <laughs> you don't really make anybody happy, um, because yeah. there's people who wish you were more libertarian in what you thought about yes. gender and you, there's people who wish you were way less. Um, mm-hmm. and one side has been particularly unkind. If you, if you could just sit in a room with these mm-hmm. people who really <laughs> disagree with you, what would be the thing you would say, or how would you start that conversation? Wow. I don't even know, Drew, if I know how I would start a conversation like that. I mean, you know, you can use any finger on either hand. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because it's interesting with some, I feel like my very presence in the room would be, Mm. you know, repulsive or threatening or, you know, um, which I find uh, really disheartening. Um, But it is interesting because even like seeking endorsements for the book, um, you know, I I thought, well, I'll I'll go to some of these typology guys and I'll go to some of, you know, people that I value what they've written about the song or different things like that. And um, it's interesting. Some of some of them came back with, oh, I really, you know, I love your writing style. I'm all in with the typology. However, you know, I don't like the way that you quoted the church fathers 
that way, mm. you know, or, you know, I didn't like that you use some of these quotes from these godly men who are in CBMW. And then on the other hand, I, I, I heard the same stuff about the typology, you know, great, great teaching. However, you know, I'm not so sure. I like the way that you connected that then to uh, the exclusive love um, differentiated between like, you know, a husband and a wife. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, uh, so, or if, you know, you're using some of that even to talk about the value of prenatal life. <laughs> um, so mm. it's interesting that, you know, I didn't get endorsements from people that I would have respected to get them from because, uh, yeah, it's equally frustrating on both sides. Um, so, you know, I, in a room, I, I wouldn't expect to want everybody to agree with me, you know, for sure. I think what I'm trying to do is have a conversation here. Um, and that's what led me to writing in the first place. Like, you know, you say I refer to myself as, as a lay woman and, and that's what I am. Like, and I think that's an important voice to speak in into here because you know the academic voice very important um the the pastor's voice very important um but so is the lay person and particularly lay women and i think you know that's what we see and what we were just talking about throughout scripture where the woman's voice comes in um she sees with different eyes and a lot of times a different perspective and and often in scripture what we see is is a picture of the end game um so you know, I, I would just, you know, have a plea to listen to more voices that we can learn from one another. I just think it would uh, be very fructifying and dynamic. Well, Professor Amy Bird, thank you for your <laughs> wisdom and your willingness to stand in the gap. Well, thanks for having me on, Drew. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 